Several years ago, I started a podcast called The Creative Funding Show. That podcast was all about how to make a living as a podcaster, author, or YouTuber. I don't host that podcast anymore. It is one of the many things that got cut during my season of pruning. But I want to share with you one of the interviews from that show, something that's still, I think, very important today. In that episode, we talk about making a living as an author by generating multiple income streams. The more different ways you make money, the less reliant you are on any one of those ways to pay the bills. This is key to both creative freedom and reduced financial stress. So how do you generate multiple streams of income as an author? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living with writing worth talking about. And with me today is Joanna Penn, who is an award-winning novelist, New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of thrillers under the pen name J.F. Penn, and she also writes nonfiction for authors. She's an award-winning creative, entrepreneur, podcaster, and YouTuber. Her site, thecreativepen.com, was voted one of the top 100 sites for writers by Writer's Digest. Joanna Penn, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Thomas. It's great to be here and talk to you again. Yeah, I love having you on the show because of the different ways that we talk about for creatives to fund their art. You have done almost all of them. I think the only thing you haven't gotten into yet is merchandise. Oh, actually, no, that's that's not true. Oh. I now have. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I do have a mug and a bag <laughs> that you can get on Society6. And I got into that because I had someone on my podcast who talked about merchandising. And I was like, okay, so I need to do only print on demand because I like the digital scalability. I don't want to do stuff I have to put in boxes. So Society6, it's good quality print on demand merch. So I've made about $6 in total out of mugs. <laughs> So, so it's that's not what great, the six is yeah. for? It's for the yeah. $6 that you make on their website? <laughs> Basically. But yes, I do pretty much everything else. That's exciting. And so you really do check all of the boxes. But I want to get started with your story and how you got into this. Because you did not emerge from the chrysalis as a creator who was doing everything and doing it well. Where did you get started writing? Sure. So I did theology at university. And then I went into management consultancy, which is one of those random things you do in Britain. And ended up implementing financial systems in to large corporates for about 13 years after college and you know really one of those jobs that is golden handcuffs they paid really well but my life was completely pointless and I just spent my time in accounts payable departments being hated by people because I was replacing them (laughs) (laughs) basically you know I know let's outsource everything to this IT system and here's this woman who's going to put you all out of a job so I got to this point where I was just miserable miserable in my working life even though I was being paid well and I had a house and a mortgage and all that husband and everything and I was I've always journaled and I just I got to this point where I was like I have to do something more with my life what do I want to do couldn't work that out so I decided to start researching how to change your career and then I thought well I'm reading a lot of self-help books listening to a lot of audio tapes and thought oh I could write a book on how to change your career and 
I ended up writing that book and in the process of writing it, learned about writing, learned about the internet, learned about how to start doing sales of books and speaking and all of that. And then ended up getting into fiction, left my job in 2011 to do it full time. And 2015, got my husband out of his job. So basically at this point, as we talk, I've been writing like professionally, as in writing for publication for about 12 years and have been full-time for seven years. So yeah, I guess I'm quite far down the journey now, but I still absolutely remember being miserable in my job, just thinking, what am I doing with my life and not knowing what was coming? And this was before the Kindle, before podcasting, before any of this. So it really was pretty hopeless back then. (laughs) Yeah, we were scratching books on stone tablets. It was very time consuming. Oh my goodness. So what was it like writing in the early days of the Indie Revolution? Because you've been independent the whole time, right? You never went with a traditional publisher. No, exactly right. And the main reason, I think, is because I'm a businesswoman. So I was working in business. I was working in accounting departments. I'm not an accountant, but I was amongst the money side of business. I was also earning a good wage. And when I looked at the possibilities for leaving my day job to become a writer, it was actually impossible at that point. I could not see how I could make a six-figure income as a writer, just writing books. You would have to hit some kind of lottery. Or the other thing I learned is that you could do it by being a speaker. So that was actually what I did first. I went to Professional Speakers Association. I learned how to speak professionally and started charging for my speaking. And all the speakers that were in that community, and I was in Australia at that point, they all learned from the Americans. So it was a very American-dominated niche, the, the speaker's niche. And I learned brilliantly, I think, because British people are quite different. I learned that I needed to start charging early. And this is something that's very important and why I think it's great that you're talking about this on your show. Being an author, it's not just about making money from book sales. So I started making my first money as a speaker and I had a book to sell. I think I sent one query letter and then didn't hear back and was just like, okay, that's random. Why can't I just print it myself and sell it myself? And I just went ahead with that. So it was very much a business decision and it still is. (laughs) It still is a business decision. So that's how I got started. And that's really smart because in fiction, especially traditional fiction, there's not a lot of middle class. You have people who are making basically no money, and then you have people who are making millions of dollars, right? J.K. Rowling, wealthier than the Queen, supposedly, because she sold a million Harry Potter books. But there's not a lot of middle class, whereas in speaking and writing business books, there's more of a middle class. So it's easier to get started and actually bring in some income, and it's less of a lottery. It's less of a big statistical anomaly. Yeah, I think the difference is as well, though, is your mindset around intellectual property rights. So the issue with speaking is that you are paid for your time and therefore it's exactly like a day job. And I realised this very early on that creating intellectual property rights and a book is intellectual property rights, you can then licence that over and over again. So while you will get spike income from speaking, a book, maybe each copy sells a lot less than one speaking gig, but you can sell that potentially for the rest of your life and 70 years after you die. So the midlist, and there are a group of authors called the midlist, and I would be one of those. So I have 27 books right now, 18 of which are fiction. And I make a multi six-figure income. I make six figures from my book sales. That is a kind of midlist type living for a writer. And there are quite a few writers in that area. But as you say, many, many, many 
at authors and in fact painters illustrators you know name an artist (laughs) most (laughs) artists are not making a lot of money or even a living wage from their art I think the difference is this attitude of business and also understanding intellectual property rights and being paid for licensing your assets as opposed to being paid for your time That's right. Because in a sense, it's kind of like you're going through the whole arc of civilization. So at the beginning, we were hunter-gatherers. We'd hunt and you'd find a woolly mammoth and everyone would eat for a month, but then you'd have nothing after that. And that's kind of like what speaking is, whereas writing and creating intellectual property is more like farming, where you get this slow, consistent source of food that's not nearly as exciting, but it's ultimately what's going to sustain a civilization in the long run. That's exactly right. And in fact, that's I think also the difference between traditional publishing and indie publishing. And when I say indie publishing, I mean independent. I'm an independent author, but I pay professionals, cover designers, editors. That will be split into payments depending on when you sign the contract, when you hand in the manuscript, when they publish it. And then if you get royalties, they will be maybe every six months and who knows for how long, depending on if you earn out. So I do a professional job of independent publishing. I don't do it all myself, which is why I don't like self-publishing. But with traditional publishing, generally you will get an advance. So you'll get a spike income that will come in and then you might get more money. You might hit that lottery. You might get a big payment and then it might disappear because they're on to the next author. With publishing as an indie, what's happened is my income, as you say, is quite boring, but it's stepped up pretty much every month. So since I first put my first book on Kindle back in sort of 2008, 2009, my income has stepped up pretty much every month consistently. And I've never had a breakout. I'm not famous, but I'm making a good living as a writer and with all the other things we'll talk about. But just with the books alone, it's a case of that consistent drip, drip, drip from multiple streams of income every month. And and that is exciting in that it funds my life. <laughs> Having food it, on the table is exciting. <laughs> exactly. But it's not like, oh, sexy seven figure deal. You know, it's not sexy money, but it's like living money, which to me is pretty sexy. So, you know. <laughs> That's right. And that is ultimately what's more sustainable. Yes. And also when you don't know when that money coming in, how can you do a cash flow forecast? How can you say, yes, I know I can pay my mortgage next month when you don't know when that's mon- when that money comes in? Whereas what I love about what you're doing here, talking about Patreon, talking about recurring revenue, actually self-publishing or independently publishing is like a salary. I get a, an amount of money every month that is pretty predictable and I know what it's going to be 60 days in advance. So I can do a cash flow forecast. And that to me is, y- y- you have to have that to make a living. Now I know some of you listening, as soon as you heard the phrase cash flow forecast, you tuned out. And you're like, oh, that's business stuff. I just want to do art. And I think that dichotomy is really unhealthy because what enables you to do art and to have that emotional room to really create your best work is not having to worry about money so much, right? If you're like panicked or like, oh, this has to be a hit to cover all of my debts that are accruing, that amount of pressure actually, I think, constrains your creativity in some ways. And so it's not about art and business being at war with each other. It's about them being on a team together. If you're crafting your life in the right way and thinking about your art as a business of creating art, I think it really should go hand in hand like what you're doing. To me, business is one of the most creative things that we do. Most of what we see in the world is created through people doing business. And that to me is exciting. You can create jobs. I work with at the moment, I work with about 13 different contractors. Not only do I pay my husband's tax and my tax with our company, we're also paying money to a whole load of freelancers 
answers. We've got our own self-sustaining little industry. The money comes in and the money goes out and that's the way cash flow should work. It comes in, it goes out, you're building your assets, you're living, you're loving your life. I mean, to me, that entrepreneurs turn ideas in their head into value in the world, whether that's value for someone else or value for them. And that's what we do as writers or as any kind of artists. You're turning what's in your head into value in the world. And and like, if that's not entrepreneurial or business, I don't know what is. (laughs) And and that's really exciting because you're making the world a better place. You're making the people who read your writings happy and entertained. And that's a good thing. You're providing for yourself, which is a good thing. And you're creating jobs, which is a good thing. And you're doing it in a sustainable way. This is what I love so much about business. A lot, the media portrays businesses like it's the evil, exploitative people. It's like, no, these are people who are making the world a better place because no one's going to give you their money unless you're making their life better in some way to be worth giving you their money, right? That's the difference between being a thief and being a business person. <laughs> I think it's much better to be putting money back into the system, to be paying. Like, you will, as you earn more, you will pay more tax. And I'm like, yay, let's pay more tax and fund all the things we want. I'm very happy with the situation I'm in and I think it's very important to talk about money and one of the issues with creatives and money is as you say there is this kind of dichotomy people think that if they are making money they've in inverted commas sold out and I was talking to a musician and he was like well selling out is what you want to do like you want to have a sold out (laughs) concert like you want people to be you know at the door but I think it's very important to say like I write the books I want to write I've never compromised on that. So I very much do the things that I care about. If I wanted to just do stuff for money, I would have stayed in the day job. But I love what I write. I really enjoy what I do. And also I love the lifestyle I have. And one of the things when I left my day job is I said to myself, well, what is my ideal life? And my ideal life was writing, reading and traveling. And that's what I do. That's pretty much what I do. And helping other people as well. I help a lot of people. (laughs) There you go. It's a good gig if you can get it. And I want to talk a little bit about how you've crafted that life. Because your money isn't just coming from royalties. It's not like you are waiting and your only money comes from that Amazon payment. Why is it important for authors and for creators to have multiple sources of income? Okay, so, well, for me, everything stems to 2008. I'm sure listeners can remember the global financial crisis. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so basically, I went to work, as many of us did. Uh, it was around March, I think, 2008. And we walked in. I was on a floor, one of these awful open plan offices with about 400 other IT consultants. And our manager walks in with a stack of paper. And basically, we're all called in one by one into an office. We're given the bit of paper paper which says three weeks notice bye-bye and we're all contractors so they weren't even obliged to pay us anything and we were all let go and this was many of us at one time so finding other work was clearly going to be an issue and I realized on that day because I was the major wage earner in my family I was like holy crap this one company has just told me to go away and and I've essentially lost my only source of income and I declared on that day that I would never do that again and that was part of how I got into this and this is very interesting because you'll find a lot of entrepreneurs these days who were made by the global financial crisis either they were laid off or like I was or their life pivoted around that moment and for me this is why I publish wide which means I don't just publish on Amazon so at the moment I'm selling books on all the big platforms iBooks, Kobo as well as Amazon Nook 
I'm selling in all the bookstores, libraries. I've sold books in 86 countries. So even just, I do audio books, even just with books, I'm doing a lot of streams of income. But then I also, as you say, I have speaking, uh, which is much less of a income stream now. I have affiliate income, which means as I blog and podcast, I point to other people's products that I absolutely love and I will get commission on the sale and then I have advertising and my Patreon and advertising sponsorship type revenue oh and courses I do courses as well so I teach <laughs> so many sources think, of income. oh my goodness <laughs> but this is the thing I actually I'm at the point now where I'm up to I think around 120 different sources of income and some of those are 50 cents a month and some of them are thousands so this is the thing and I don't obviously focus my attention on the little ones all the time but by building up all these streams of income I am not dependent if Amazon changed their rules tomorrow I am not destroyed and if any of them change their rules I'm not destroyed and that to me is how you are truly independent which, in a sense, there's nothing new about this advice, right? If you go to a financial advisor, the very first thing they're going to say is you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. Don't put all of your money in blockbuster stock because you don't know if it's going to go up or go down. You want to diversify your assets. And yet, for so many of us, when it comes to income, it's all dependent on one person, our boss. <laughs> and that one person has so much power over our lives. Whereas the way you've structured your life, if Patreon were to shut down or Amazon were to shut down, any one of them or even several of them could fail at the same time and you're not in the soup kitchen line. And one of the things I imagine you're doing, and I definitely do this, is having money and savings. <laughs> Part of being an entrepreneur is that you can't live paycheck to paycheck. You have to adjust your lifestyle down so that you're living on less than what you're making in case there's that unevenness. And as you get a more mature income stream, those waves even out, but it's still good to have that foundation. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because winding back to like 2011, what happened is obviously I was working a consulting job. So I was working really hard and didn't have much bandwidth for the business. But I was blogging. I'd written, I think, four books by then by getting up really early and working at the weekends and everything. And I went to four days a week. But then there was a moment when my husband and I, I said to him, look, if I need to give up my job because I have to do this next step. So what we did, I mean, bless him, he's amazing. And of course, now he works in the company as well. But I said, we're gonna have to sell our house. <laughs> we have to downsize, we're just selling the car. We moved from a four bedroom house to a one bedroom flat. And we moved to rental income, which essentially is much more fixed. So you don't have like the surprise boiler costs or whatever. So we downsized. I had six months money in the bank. And I said to him, if I can't make this work in six months, I will go back to my day job. And of course, I never went back. So I left in 2011, but I started writing in 2006, started publishing and blogging. And in 2008, started podcasting 2009. So it took me three to four years doing what they now call the side hustle, <laughs> which wasn't around again when I was doing it, but doing things on the side in order to then be able to move out of my job. And then it took from 2011 to 2015 for me to return to the income that I was on before. So it really was quite a long journey. And this is what I would say to people, just be aware of what you want like what are you aiming for what is the goal why are you doing this and for me it was always I want to measure my life by what I create and measure my life by the people I can help and that just kept me going through what Seth Godin calls the dip that point where things look 
a bit bleak, but you need to go through that in order to move to a different career because that's basically what this is. I reread The Dip almost annually. Every time I have a big decision or I'm like facing a life choice, I go back and reread The Dip by Seth Godin. And the most recent time I read it was just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, are you going through a dip? (laughs) I am. I'm starting this new podcast and all of these new things that I'm doing and trying to decide what to prune. And one of the things that he said that jumped out at me this time I read the book was he said, it's smart to not try something. And it's smart to start something and to work your way through the dip. But starting things over and over again where you quit in the dip is really foolish. Like you either need to do it for real or you need to not do it. Because one of the things he talks about in that book is how important it is to quit and quit the things that aren't going to make it prune the tree, so to speak, so that you can focus on doing one thing well. And I think that your story is a really good illustration of this because you didn't start everything all at the same time. You didn't start the podcast and the merchandising and the writing for writers and the writing fiction all in 2006. You started one and you got it up to a good point and then you started the next one and you're able to add and go from success to success. And I think that that's the right way to do it instead of starting them all, getting into the dip and then quitting. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, many of this wasn't around <laughs> when when I started. But the, I think there's, there's two answers. You know, one is a lot of this wasn't around. So Patreon's a great example was just not there. It, when I started self-publishing, there was no Kindle. Ebooks were downloadable PDFs from people's websites, <laughs> which is just crazy. You know, oh, ebooks were not mainstream. <laughs> I know. Well, well, what's even funnier? The iPhone came out in 2007 and also the Kindle. So those two technologies for me were the things that enabled me pretty much to move into being a full-time creative. But the other thing is that some of the things I did do at the beginning are still the engines of my business. And in fact, the main reason I make good money from affiliate marketing is because I've been blogging since 2008. And I took a course in blogging from the lovely Yarrow Starak from Entrepreneur's Journey. And what I learned from Yarrow around SEO, so search engine optimization and content marketing, it wasn't even called content marketing back then, but it, but basically the emphasis was on providing value for your audience and do not try and game anything. Back in 2008, gaming SEO and gaming the Google algorithm was, was a thing. Everyone did that, the black hat SEO stuff. And the school I come from, the kind of copy blogger, generosity, value school is write quality things that stand the test of time and you will eventually reap the benefits of this. So while for between sort of 2008 to 2012, I was blogging about self-publishing and nobody cared, like I was nobody cared, seriously. And then <laughs> from sort of 2012, because of the Kindle, because of because self-publishing went mainstream in America, my website became one of the top websites in the niche because it has really good Google rank because it's been around so long and because I have consistently done quality writing on it. So this is an interesting thing is that my business now, my income now is based on 10 years of content marketing, so blogging and podcasting. I'm I'm at nine years of podcasting right now, which is in the podcast space, as you know, is pretty old. (laughs) In those days, people were downloading podcasts onto iPods. (laughs) I remember doing that. I was, I had a podcast in those days. Yes. Well, we didn't call them podcasts, really. We call them just downloadable audios, right? (laughs) The word podcast wasn't even mainstream. 
That's right. So speaking of podcasting, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast because you were one of the first ones into the space. Why start a podcast for writers? Well, again, so the guy I learned from Yarrow, he was doing a lot of downloadable audio. And I was like, I really like learning this way because I'm commuting. I was driving at the time. I was living in Australia. So my commute was maybe an hour each way in the car. So obviously listening was the way I was learning. And I was changing my mindset, which I think audio is so powerful. I also started listening to a few podcast fiction authors. So Scott Sigler being a really big one, still an amazing fiction author who still podcasts his fiction. And so I was like, wow, this is a powerful medium. And then I think Yarrow said something like, you can learn by doing this. And I realized that there there was nobody. At the time, there was pretty much nobody doing anything in self-publishing on audio or podcast. They were in the speaking niche and the non-fiction niche, but definitely not in the sort of fiction niche and that kind of thing. And many authors are quite scared of technology. So because I come from a more technical background, I thought I could do this. But I kid you not, the first episode I did, which is in March 2009, I phoned up the lady like on a proper phone. <laughs> if people know what that is. With like uh, a little you know, twisty <laughs> wire that goes into the wall. <laughs> yeah, basically. But there was a speakerphone button. So I put the phone on speakerphone and then I held a recorder next to the phone and I did an interview basically holding and I've, that episode is still up. Don't be ashamed <laughs> of your past. <laughs> There's nowhere but, to go but up in terms of audio quality if that's where you start. Exactly, exactly. But amazingly, that started me off into podcasting and I realized that you could talk to some pretty big names by doing something that they are not that comfortable with. I mean, some of the people I've interviewed over the years, you can't hire them, you can't book them as consulting, but they will do a podcast interview. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what's so interesting. So my attitude there was, I wanted to learn. I was also pretty lonely, so I didn't really know any authors. So I thought maybe I could find a community if I start trying to help people. So really, I started the podcast because I wanted to learn and help people. And that is still a part of it. It was actually only 2015 that I started to make money from my podcast. Yeah, and I want to talk about that because some people are like, is it possible to make money on a podcast? How do you specifically monetize your podcast? Okay, so basically, I'm very, very, very careful about the companies I associate with. I think in the author space, as well as many other industries, there are companies that you don't necessarily want to be involved with. Who will offer you money? So one thing is get your ethics right, get your headset right before you move into monetization. Uh, That I think is really important. Then what I did, I started off with corporate sponsorship and that was based on relationships. So I've been speaking in the author niche for years and COBA who are very big in Canada and now increasingly big all over the world. They're a rival to Kindle. I had a good relationship with them. So they're my primary sponsor of the podcast. And that was a literally a conversation at a conference. So that was personal relationships. And then I came up with my figure based on downloads. So that's very important. If you've just started a podcast, I don't see how you can monetize a podcast from scratch unless you can find 
sponsorship in that way. But basically I had proven downloads that I could show from my Amazon S3 hosting and also Blueberry is my publisher. And I had downloadable figures from them so I could prove what the sponsor would be getting. So that was the first thing I did. And now I have also Ingram Spark, who are a print on demand service and draft to digital, who are again, another ebook service, but all companies that I use myself and highly recommend. So I think that's really important. And the other thing that I want to point out real quick is that these aren't just products that you use, but they're products that are specifically interesting to your specific audience. So it's not like you're sleeping on a Casper mattress and you're recommending a Casper uh, mattress to your audience, which is fine. But Casper will never pay you as much to sponsor your show as a business that makes something specifically for authors. Because the fact that you have such a focused niche, a lot of people are like, oh, well, if I have a niche, I can't get sponsors because I won't have as many people listening to my podcast. I should talk about some TV shows. Like, yeah, but you may have fewer people, but those people are more valuable to the right kind of advertiser. Like Kobo isn't going to advertise on an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, right? You know, for every one person who's <laughs> oh, interested in Kobo, <laughs> there's yeah. 99 people who are like, what is Kobo? Like, I have never written a book, right? But for your podcast, every single person who's going to listen to a podcast about writing and publishing is a potential customer for Kobo. And so your audience is particularly attractive to them. Yes, and I would go so far as to say, unless you are Tim Ferriss, you need to go niche. Like, you really do. I know Tim's podcast, and he does have some really random stuff on there. I think he had Casper on there. But when you have that many downloads every week, you can be sure that some of it's going to hit. But as you say, in these niches, you can get rabid fans who are looking for specific stuff. And thus, having a podcast on a niche is going to enable you to make more money. I have someone who listens to my podcast who's in into those sort of military figures, mini figures that they do battles and things with. And and he started a Patreon and he got really a lot of money very quickly from his very small demographic. <laughs> I think he's overtaken me and I've been doing it like two and a half years. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, because they're very hungry because nobody else is catering to that market. So I totally agree with you. It's a very good idea. So just back on my podcast. So I have corporate sponsors. I have a Patreon now. I do two episodes a month I charge for and that has definitely come up now to a good level and I also do my own marketing so for example I'm launching a course on how to write non-fiction in a couple of weeks and I will take the marketing slot in the podcast in the mid-roll and I will advertise my own products so I'll advertise the audiobook I'll advertise my premium course so I'll basically use that slot which my audience now expect for myself so that's multiple ways to market and the nice thing about that is that you already have an audience that knows likes and trusts you and you're getting 100% of the money because it's your own product Yes. With audiobooks particularly, if there are authors listening and you haven't done audiobooks and you have a podcast, I mean, it's a captive audience for audio. <laughs> I mean, all they need to do is switch over to whatever app and buy the audiobook. And if you don't know, you can use ACX, the letters ACX.com to independently publish audiobooks now. It's really incredible what we can do as independents. And I'm making decent money with audiobooks, nonfiction particularly, every month because I'm able to talk about that on the podcast. Podcast, and I don't even narrate my audiobooks. <laughs> so it's, a, it's definitely a tangential thing. I narrated my audiobook and that I did partly because I already have all of the equipment. And it was, it's 
not as easy as recording a podcast. I'll say that it is soul crushing, but it is also very rewarding. Yes, which is why I hire a professional because yeah, yeah I was just like, I did it once. I had done business for authors that is read by me and no, I won't be doing it again. <laughs> it's so hardcore. And that is, I think, a really important point. Some people are going to hear your story and they're like, oh, 10 years, that sounds so hard. And while some things do take time, they are also benefiting from the fact that you were using really old, really hard to use tools in those early days, right? Like making money as an independent author before Kindle was a lot harder. <laughs> Making money with a podcast before Patreon is a lot harder. And Patreon now is very different than what Patreon was two years ago in terms of what it's able to do and how many users, right? Two years ago, no one knew what Patreon was. And when they back your campaign, that's the first time they're creating a Patreon account. Whereas now, as more and more authors get on Patreon and more and more readers are backing authors on Patreon, now it's not, I have to create a Patreon account. It's, oh, I just add another author to my account. And it gets easier every month when it comes to attracting patrons. Yes. And I think what's exciting about this world we live in is that people are more and more excited about supporting independence. So as being now I'm a supporter of Amanda Palmer, I get her emails and what she's up to and I get her songs before they go live to everyone else and with my Patreon I do a private Q&A every month so my patrons get an extra like 45 minute audio every month and they can ask their questions so they get access and I don't do consulting anymore I barely do speaking so it's an access thing that I'm giving and it's fascinating to see how these things have moved on but it's much more normal now to support a creative directly like people would rather shop on Etsy than they would going into the mall and in fact that's why we're seeing the death of the malls people are interested in the creator and the story behind the creator and as a tangential point your story is very important so whenever you do something like this if you do a podcast if you do a YouTube channel whatever make sure that you are the one who is heard over time and make sure you have a slot where you talk about yourself so that people get to know you and because that's the secret with this stuff they have to care about you and the only way that people can care about you is if you are a little bit vulnerable and you share your difficult times and people will support you if you're honest about it and you give value very importantly give a lot of value. And your Q&A episode is really great. So I back you on Patreon. <laughs> so I, I get the Q&A episode and we do a Q&A episode very much like yours on novel marketing. And it's the easiest episode we do all month because we're just answering questions. It's very easy in terms of preparation. So we're not scheduling with a guest and doing all of this research to create it. And yet, I feel like it's one of the most valuable pieces of content that we put out all month because we are answering specific people's specific questions. And so when you become a patron of Joanna Penn or you become a patron of Novel Marketing, suddenly you get to pick their brain and hearing the questions that other patrons are asking is educational and it's good to hear those answers. And then the other benefit for you is that it keeps you from getting into the ivory tower. So I see this happen with experts where they start off and they're super helpful. Let's say somebody's teaching podcasting at the beginning. It's like what microphone to buy, but after a while they get bored with that basic content and their information gets more and more advanced until suddenly they're no longer understandable to somebody just getting started. And they start losing 
their people because they get all the answers answered, the questions answered, and then they're not getting beginners because they are out of touch. And suddenly they're finding their revenue shrinking. And having that where anyone who's a patron can ask you a question reminds you, it's like, oh, that's right. Not everyone knows what KDP is. Not everyone knows what it means to go wide. And it keeps you relevant for that beginner audience that's so important. I would say on that, that I think the important thing is whether you're starting a podcast or a blog or whatever, or a YouTube channel or whatever you're doing, you have to enjoy the process or whether you're writing books. This is very important for writing books. You have to enjoy the process and feel that the conversation is worth it. So this is, I think, the third time that you and I have have chatted, right? I've been on your show a number of times and I keep coming back because I enjoy talking to you and I get a lot out of our conversation because I think you're a smart guy and Jim is as well. And I enjoy our conversation. So I get something out of this too. I like helping other people, but I also enjoy our conversations. And so if nobody else was listening, we've still had an interesting conversation. So I think that has to be the way that you go into this. Like with writing, if no one else ever sees this, is this still worth my time? And for me, that's the only thing that will keep me going because otherwise I might as well go back to my day job. I mean, really. So I think big message, it's not necessarily passion, but it's certainly interest. And you have to keep wanting to do this for its own sake. And the money, I can't say the money will come, but the money will likely come if you focus on both the craft and the business side and educate yourself and put yourself out there. So, so yeah. Yay. And I, and I just <laughs> want to say that that's so important. That if you have destination fever, it's like, I will not be happy unless I'm a best-selling writer. And then it's like, you get there and it's like, oh, I won't be happy until I have a second bestseller to prove that it wasn't a fluke. And then, oh, I won't be happy until it's a New York Times bestseller. Oh, not until it's a movie. Not until it's a good movie. Right? There's always some milestone ahead of you. If you enjoy the journey, you can have that joy even when you're doing it in obscurity. And that motivation is ultimately what's going to lead to success. And what I love about that is that it applies regardless. It doesn't matter what you're creating. You have to be able to put in the work. Joanna, where can people find out more about you? And where, and tell us specifically about your podcast. Yes, sure. So come on over to The Creative Pen Podcast, Pen with a Double N, and find out about writing, independently publishing, book marketing, and making a living with your writing. Also, thecreativepen.com, pen with a double N, and you can get the free author blueprint, which is all about as I said before, <laughs> writing books. And also, if you have any questions, you're welcome to tweet me at The Creative Pen. And we will have links to all of those in the show notes. So if you just scroll down in your podcast app on your iPhone or whatever app you're using, you don't even have to leave the app. Just scroll and you can tap those links to find Joanna in all these different places. And I really do encourage you to check out her podcast and check out what she's doing at Patreon. You can learn <laughs> a lot from Joanna Penn. So Joanna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Thomas. And I'll just add here, the Novel Marketing Podcast still has that monthly patrons-only Q&A episode. The one thing that's changed is that I now do it live. So patrons are able to come on screen with me. They ask their question. I sometimes will ask them follow-up questions. I answer their question. And then the recording of that live episode goes out just to patrons on the patrons-only podcast feed. So you can watch a replay of the video. You can attend the live video session and ask your own question if you're a patron, or you can listen to it in your podcast app of choice. And I still really enjoy answering your questions on the patrons-only episode. And if you're curious about becoming a patron, just go to authormedia.com slash patron. It will take you to a page that has all of the information. 
Speaking of patrons, our featured patron is C.L.R. Peterson, author of Lucia's Renaissance. Heresy is fatal in late Renaissance Italy, so only a suicidal zealot would so much as whisper the name of Martin Luther. But after Luther's ideas ignite young girl's faith, she must choose, abandon her beliefs, or risk her life in the turbulent world of late 16th century Italy. So CLR Peterson, thank you for being one of our featured patrons, our perk, our top perk. Our most expensive perk on Patreon is getting your book featured from time to time on the podcast. I have a a rotation that I go through and we've had some spots open up. So if you want to hear your book featured on this podcast, just become a patron and select the featured patron level. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, and the blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read that blog post version, visit authormedia.com slash 333. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.